welcome to this week's uh, DevCast. And today I want to talk about a, a, an interesting topic, but maybe a dull title. It's a choosing a cloud network for government compliant application that I read a couple of months ago in MSD and Magazine. Uh, it was really interesting though. So I have the authors Bruno and Ricardo on the line here on Skype with me. So welcome Bruno and Ricardo. Welcome, Doug. Thank you. Should you first introduce yourself to my listeners, Bruno? Absolutely. So, first of all, thank you for having both of us here on the uh, on your podcast. It's, we're happy to be here. Uh, my name is Bruno Turkley. I'm a, a technical evangelist here in the Silicon Valley area. Um, my specialty, of course, because of MSDN, shows that I am... Uh, engaged in Azure. And so I do a lot of code camps, a lot of presentations, a lot of blogs and writing around, around that. Uh, but I'm also quite heavily invested in Windows 8 and I have five apps in the store. So I spend quite a bit of time both on the server and the client. So do you have uh, a popular, 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 oh, gosh. do you have a popular app that you can uh, tell me more about? If we can download sure. and see how good you are? I think the one that's doing well is my photo duplicate finder. So what it does is it takes a list of folders and it kind of iterates through them looking for exact duplicates regardless of location and name. And it gives you an opportunity to uh, move out the duplicate files. And you're actually the latest release that just got in this morning allows you to select which folder contains the original photo that you don't want to move out. So that one's pretty popular that I have a photo sorter app that allows you to chronologically sort your photos. So in my case, I have young kids. I'm able to say, oh, okay, what, show me all the photos that were um, a month after birth. Um, that's another one. I have a couple kids' games. I've got one called Teach Kids Music. That's a lot of fun. Um, in fact, my three-year-old can knows all the instruments to an orchestra now because of that game. And okay. I could you, talk forever about it, but yeah, that, yeah. That, should, that should get you started. Maybe we can have uh, some of your apps in the show notes for this uh, podcast so people can download the see for yourself if they are any good. So, yeah. <laughs> Ricardo, who, who are you? Uh, thank you, Dag. Thank, thanks for having us here. Uh, well, my name is Ricardo Villalobos. I'm a uh, Microsoft Platform Evangelist, um, part of the Globally Engaged Partners team. And what that means is that I work with uh, companies worldwide uh, helping them understand and and adopt Windows Azure. Um, for the last three years, I was part of the Windows Azure incubation team. So a lot of uh, interesting use cases, a lot of interesting situations that we have run into with companies using the cloud. And it's been, it's been really uh, um, encouraging to see the adoption of the cloud for the last few years. Um, and, and again, happy to be here and, and happy to share uh, our thoughts about the articles and, and this topic in particular. Okay, thank you guys. Uh, and how about the topic then? Uh, when I read it, I, I thought that, that um, the biggest, um, uh, what you say, that, that are a bit hesitated to, to, to use um, Azure or use any cloud platform has to be government. So if governments start doing uh, cloud platforms and especially Azure, maybe everyone else can do that also. So that's uh, my starting point when I, when I read the article. Uh, but why did you write the article? What, what was your mission with it, Bruno? Here in the U.S., um... 
um, under Obama, we have what we call the Open Government Initiative, which is basically there to provide more transparency into government activities. For example, here in San Francisco, you're um, allowed to place these 311 messages into a queue, which essentially might say, hey, there's a tree blocking the stop sign here on 5th and Market Street, or hey, there's like a big pothole here at some other address. And so this transparency of government uh, basically inspired us to think about uh, the government's greater engagement with the cloud. And of course, there's also a lot of financial pressure for the government to kind of lower costs. And, you know, why not, why wouldn't the government follow the same trend as the enterprise in terms of um, offsourcing work to the cloud in, an, in order to save some money? And certainly for some agencies, like let's say the tax agency, there's huge sick a huge cyclical nature to their business, you know, when tax time comes around, they need to scale up and the rest of the year they, they, they can scale down. So it seemed like it's, they seem like a good match for the cloud from my point of view. Uh, can you in the, in the States uh, do your taxes online or do you need to use paper? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, most of us here use TurboTax. And so for like 30 bucks, you can, you know, With the beauty about the electronic filing, typically you can open up last year's return, import it, and just change it for this year's number. Mm -hmm. So within an hour, you could you know file your taxes. We, do you know how we can do it, Sweden? We can uh, use we can just use a text message. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so we we get a, a paper from from the government to see what we have earned and so on. And up in the in the right corner or something like that, we can we got the code and we just can text that to the to the tax uh, government uh, business and they it's okay. So it's very easy. So they already know all your income numbers yeah. and so on at that yeah. point. And it's just a question of like, hey, I'm alive. Let's do my taxes. Yeah, you know that we have maybe a better, uh, a more complicated. Uh, we are. I don't know uh, the, the difference, but uh, we all things is already recorded somewhere in Sweden. Right. Taxes, incomes, and everything. So. Yeah, well, we're pretty but, much but, the same thing. Mm -hmm. Ricardo, what what do you think about uh, why you wrote this article and, and what, what's behind it? Well, the other thing is that we were trying to remove the myth that this concept of having a public cloud is, is new and that companies don't have experience managing the resources for a multi-tenant approach. Um, there's a division inside Microsoft called Global Foundation Services. Uh, Anybody can go to globalfoundationservices.com and get more information about our data centers worldwide. Uh, so we've been doing this for 25 years. The same data centers where we have Outlook.com, Xbox Live, Office 365, with all the security measures, with all the uh, redundancy mechanisms, are the same ones where we have our Windows Azure servers. So. Even though the concept of offering virtualization as a service is kind of new, um, the experience managing these resources is not. We've been doing this for the longest time. And so the idea of the article was to remove some of those uh, or clarify some of those misconceptions. Um, we mentioned in the article that if you look at the government projects, only 10% 
are being hosted in the public cloud. And we believe that even though there are some specific portions of the architecture that might need to remain on premises, there are ways to address that. And there are ways to move not the whole solution to the public cloud, but keep the some of the components uh, uh, private and then some others um, take advantage of the multi-tenant approach. And that's exactly what we talk about in the article. Do you know which kind of ten, this 10%, uh, what kind of feature that is? Is it very simple things or is it, is it um, complicated or and uh, advanced features with uh, highly secure uh, data and so on? Uh, we don't really have um, uh, visibility to the kinds of uh, projects that constitute that 10%. But my guess is that it's very simple portals, uh, surveys, and um, your ways of gathering public information that then is automatically transmitted to, to private data centers. Um, but at the end of the day, the important thing to understand is regardless of the types of projects, there's still this idea, this notion that is not really secure to have your data and your information in the, in the, in the public cloud. And as you, as you mentioned, if, if the government starts addressing that, <coughs> I'm sorry, uh, then uh, more people will be, will be willing to, to start considering the public cloud. Again, I think that one of the, the, the concepts that we want to promote is that you don't have to move everything to the to the public cloud, you can always come up with uh, hybrid uh, deployments and approaches to 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 make it work and make it happen. And I and I think as a follow up to that, Daga, it's if you go to the WhiteHouse.gov/open, you'll see that it's already investing heavily in this notion of transparency, and so. You may not see it for internal IT, but you could argue that they're testing the waters with the open government initiative where data security is not a high priority, that, that this data is already public, there's not really a risk of compromise. So I think you know there's a pretty strong case for uh, using the cloud to reach to the citizens. Ricardo, you, you mentioned just the, the, the security and the privacy and the compliance things. How, how do uh, government uh, and, and so on, such kind of customers uh, talk about that right now uh, regarding the cloud? Well, um, the federal government came up with a program called the Federal Risk and Authorization Management Program, uh, FedRAMP, that's the way it's called. And actually, every single cloud vendor needs to adhere to that to that standard in the next six months. Uh, we completed that uh, already for Windows Azure and obviously the rest of the of the Microsoft services. So that's one way of of making sure that uh, whenever you move data to to uh, the the storage in in Windows Azure, is going to be uh, secure and for your eyes only. As you know as well, we also announced that there's gonna be a way to always encrypt your information. That's something that you have to take care of today, but we are gonna offer the, the option of always encrypting your data. Uh, all you have to do is to upload it and it's gonna be encrypted. Um, and, and we made that announcement a couple of weeks ago that uh, we're gonna start offering that option soon but in any case we we are already uh, we already completed the fed ramp um uh, compliance 
And and uh, there's there's one place to find all that information. By the way, if you search for Windows Azure Trust Center, uh, it's gonna take you to um, the compliance page. We have information about security, the compliance programs, privacy, etc. It's, it's a very very a rich uh, area inside the Windows Azure uh, portal, and I encourage uh, uh, your listeners to definitely visit that section because it's it's, it's your one uh, uh, place resource for all all, all that. Uh, we, we shouldn't uh, talk so much about security, but but uh, Bruno. Uh, do you know how the competition is regarding this? Uh, for example, Google and and Amazon are they on the same level as uh, Azure? I think the um, strategic advantage Microsoft has is that we um, support the notion of a hybrid cloud. So we have a lot of technologies that allow you to bridge your your networks from on premise to the cloud, and I think that's a, a key value proposition for the government. Uh, being able to like share resources transparently. The other part about it is that I think that's driving a move to the cloud is now shrink wrap software no longer exists. So if you want to leverage um, productivity suites like Office or SharePoint, you know, to some degree, you're we've pretty much bet our business on supporting software as a service. And so I think when I when I look out there at, at different vendors, that's the part they're missing. They don't have that kind of hybrid approach you know amazon believes everything's a public cloud for example which in microsoft's view is not really what uh what the re the reality of the situation ricardo did you want to say something or no we, we, i think that we are in a better position to provide symmetry when it comes to deploying to the private clouds and the public clouds to give you an example uh we we offer uh, the Windows Azure Service Bus for messaging, which we actually mentioned in the article as a way of integrating applications and um, distributed systems. Um, and if you decide to deploy that um, in your private network or your private data center, we actually offer an on-premises version of the Service Bus, uh, which is a lot, uh, it's an approach that allows you to, to, to create um, a uniform uh, strategy where regardless of where you move your application to, you have the option of of uh, of creating or selecting the 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 platform and this, the the framework that you want to use. Um, another example is is uh, SQL SQL Server. We, we we're starting. We we have SQL Server as a service with some limitations because it's multi-tenant, but it's the exact same version that you use on-premises. So you can deploy uh, SQL Server to virtual machines using SQL always on as a clustering mechanism, uh, but we also offer SQL Server as a service. And under, under preview, we have a service that we call the SQL uh, DB dedicated uh, approach, which allows you to assign a specific number of cores to your database. So multiple ways of using SQL Server from a deployment and service model, uh, but always in symmetry. And I think that we have, we're in a better position to keep uh, um, enhancing or enriching that, that approach because we uh, work directly with the product groups so the Windows Azure group works directly with the SQL Server group, with the Service Boss group, and they can work together on the roadmap, making sure that there's symmetry in those deployments. And actually, to be honest, 
uh, we have merged a lot of those groups internally. Like the SQL Server group, they are both in charge of the Azure deployment and the actual product that you are using on-premises. The competition, they don't have the luxury. One Microsoft. <laughs> uh, Bruno, uh, I really like, uh, I, I, which one of your guys was uh, uh, come up with a trust takes time? That was a really good um, from from your article that just trust takes time. What what do you think about? Uh, I, I I listened to um, a guy uh, with a, uh, what do you heard with the Gartner hype group hype uh, graph. You know the when uh -huh. you go up and down, and he said that uh, we are soon on the uh, the more productive part, uh, the part more to the to the right with the cloud. Do you think that's right that we we are soon thinking about the cloud like just a commodity? I, I do indeed. It's a good question. If you look back at what we thought about online checking just a few years ago, it seemed ridiculous that we were going to actually write checks from our computer that we would trust the infrastructure with our money. But, you know, it, it takes time, like I, like we said. And so I think, yeah, that we're turning the corner. I, I think there's still a lot of people today that are using the cloud and not really realizing that it is the cloud back end. You know, even if you're into social networks, guess what? That's cloud computing. So, so I think, yeah, it's just a matter of time before it becomes commonplace. Yeah. And I even said that uh, if you use the phone, you use the cloud. Because yeah, if right. you uh, set, uh, record a message on your phone, it's in the cloud. Well, we're talking on Skype, and presumably yeah. Skype is running in a data center. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Oh, I got some echo. Did you hear that? I did. Yeah. I had. <laughs> Someone is listening. <laughs> okay. Should should we do um, uh, the the main part of your article is a discussion about the different types of integration between more of the internal systems and external systems presumably in the cloud in Azure and do you have uh, four levels or can you say with, with different kinds of integration and and that's I think should be our main focus for the rest of the interview to discuss these four different kinds of integration points uh, for the first it, it looked like uh, your your graph or your diagram or your image looks like a the old ISO, uh, what to call? It? Do you know the level seven levels of uh, networking? The OSI remember? model. Yeah, yeah. The OSI model. Yeah. So exactly, and it's look a little bit that like that, but it's four layers, and I understand them. So that's the difference. Just taking one step back, um, I think that there are two specific topics that we wanted to address before jumping into those four ways of connecting or integrating okay, yeah. systems. Um, th the first one is you have the deployment models. So when we talk about deployment models, we're talking about deploying to a multi-tenant environment where you are sharing resources with other tenants, with other companies. And then you have the private cloud where you have a server dedicated to you and you are only leasing the communication line. And, and that's one way of creating hybrid models where you have some resources in a multi-tenant environment and some resources in, in your in your public uh, data center. And now, by multi-tenant, multi you mean, for example, Azure? Right, except when I say multi-tenant, I mean a public cloud like Windows Azure, exactly. And then you have the service models. That's different. That's how much of the layers that, that Bruno mentioned 
uh, are delegated to the vendor in this case. So once you are in the public cloud, once you decide that you want to use a multi-tenant environment, how many of those layers you want to delegate to your vendor and how many you are going to take control of. So two different things, and the two of them are, the, the, the two approaches are important. How are you going to combine the, the multi-tenant resources and how you are going to uh, delegate some of those layers to your vendor? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. And uh, sometimes we have something in between also by uh, the hosters. Well, that's that's the beauty of, of Windows Azure. It allows you the uh, to, to to choose. And and one of the the main responsibilities of cloud architects that if you think about is is is, is kind of a, 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 a new role inside uh, corporations and, and, and companies are starting to understand the responsibilities of, of those architects. And one of them is deciding what components of the architecture are good candidates for, for the public clouds, which ones are good candidates for a platform service model, and which ones are good ones for infrastructure as a service. And it's not easy, it's not a simple decision in many cases. And, and that's what we're trying to emphasize in this article. Uh, so do you think, for example, for governments that uh, more secure data and maybe secure functions and so on should always be inside the, their own firewall and uh, they should have only, for example, web portals and so on in the more public part of, the, of their uh, visible infrastructure? So say. Yeah, it depends on the project, of course, but if you have sens um, sensitive data um, that, that needs to remain on premises for whatever reason um, because exposing that to a multi-tenant environment regardless of the compliance and security is, is not acceptable then you can always keep that on premises that's that's always acceptable and then uh, delegate the or, or deploy i'm sorry deploy the portal accessing that information to the public cloud it's not sensitive it's something that uh, you can auto scale um, and and you can delegate to somebody else. But for example, uh, Bruno, okay, Bruno. I, I was going to mention one of the points we make in the article now is that with these new devices coming out, like that Cisco device, it is really economical now to set up a trusted VPN connection between the cloud and your on-premises. So really the barrier to doing this, to keeping your data on-premises versus the cloud is not significant as much as it used to be. Um, you're able to just leverage these devices now, connect them to your network, and you can have either a machine-to-site uh, VPN or a site-to-site VPN, and you know you kind of can enjoy both both worlds without worrying about security as much. But but don't you think that uh, the governments and other companies are a bit a bit afraid about the cable between their uh, VPN endpoint and our VPN endpoint? What I mean by that is the latency. Yeah, For example, if you have the SQL Server inside. Absolutely. Uh, what do you say about that? I think you know uh, one of the things Ricardo mentioned is that we do have SQL Server as a service. Um, and the challenge with that one, it doesn't really support distributed transactions. Why? Latency. Um, data synchronization services can take a long time to, 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 to actually work. Why? Latency. And so, yeah, you, one of the challenges for everyone to overcome is the, the notion of latency. So, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's legitimate to argue that um, some of the latency issues are, 
are a challenge. But at the same time, we do have data centers throughout the world. And so that's one of the, you know, you know, we have Traffic Manager, which lets you route requests to the closest data center. Uh, we have, you know, CDNs to bring things closer to, to the customer. We have caching to help improve the, the uh, performance. So, but at the end of the day, you're right. You need to carefully consider latency. Uh, should we take the, the four different kinds of integration point? We, we have already mentioned a couple of them, but uh, uh, Bruno, Ricardo, uh, just an overview of the four first, so then we can drill down in each of them. Who wants to, to start? I, I can maybe... I can. <laughs> go, ahead, go, ahead, go ahead, Bruno. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to mention, um, and maybe Ricardo, you could speak to these two. Um, on figure one, one of the technologies that we, we highlight is the service bus. Now, I think that's, you know, Ricardo and I just wrote an article in the Arduino, and many companies are taking the Arduino and connecting them up to VPNs when that might not be appropriate. So circling back to your point, Dag, about security, the service bus is a way for different parts of the government to communicate each other without opening up their internal networks. By using the service bus as this little queue in the sky, where messages can be dropped off asynchronously, that's part of the architecture that uh, that we're in favor of. Ricardo, maybe you can comment on that too. Yeah. Um, we, uh, could, could we just uh, yeah. mention the four different integration points? And I can do that and take it from less integrated to more integrated. So, so the first is data synchronization. And the next level is application level connectivity and messaging. And then we come down to, to the more VPN stuff. It's a secure machine to site network connectivity and secure site to site network connectivity. That, that's the four different kinds of integration that you you mentioned in your article, um, so we will discuss that. But Ricardo, back to you. No, 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 and and that's a that's a good point. What I was going to say is that it's not really about uh, how integrated you are. It's because I mean you can be as integrated using Service Bus uh, and using VPN or using a VPN connection. It's about the use case. It's it's about um, addressability and it's about how you want to identify the different portions that are integrated or communicating with each other. Uh, to, to give you an example, uh, if you only have one computer that you want to connect to your public cloud, instead of using a VPN hardware device, connect that computer using point to site because that's not going to expose any other resources inside your network and you get the same level of connectivity that you need. So uh, again, you have to go back to the use case. You have to go back to the whiteboard and understand what you're trying to achieve. Um, for uh, when you when you decide to use the service bus, as as Bruno mentioned, um, you're gonna save a lot of of time in terms of configuration and opening endpoints, uh, trying to to integrate multiple devices. On top of that, you don't require to use the internal IP address to find those devices. You can use just a queue name for those. And, and again, we're gonna publish a couple of articles on this. But it's, again, it's not about the level of integration. It's about what is the right tool to use when you are trying to connect distributed systems. And, and we offer that inside, inside Windows Azure. Um, the, the first one is data synchronization. And, and that applies to the scenarios where you have 
or, or you require redundancy. So you have multiple deployments in different regions around the world, for example. You have, you're using two different data centers and you wanna make sure that the data in the West Coast is the same data you have in the East Coast. You use something like data synchronization to make sure that those two databases stay in sync. Um, and by the way, we're working on different ways to achieve that. Like uh, we just announced the SQL always on clustering mechanism that will allow us in time to offer other options to keep servers in sync when they are in multiple regions. So that's that's the scenario where, where you need to think about data synchronization. And what, what's the pros and cons of that uh, type of integration? Uh, well, again, it depends on the use case. Let, let's say that you, you have a global audience. Uh, I guess the, the process that uh, your, your users will be able to access your application in a, uh, in a faster, quicker way when it's local. If you have the, the application deployed in Singapore and you need to have the, loc the, the data local as well because of latency, as you mentioned, uh, but at the same time, you have users in the Americas or you have users in Europe. Uh, you are going to have three different deployments, three different portals, but you want to make sure that the data is the same or at least synchronized to some degree uh, or, 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 or in a, a specific amount of time. So with data synchronization, you can say, well, I'm going to give you um, a five minute window for the data to be synchronized. And when um, we need when synchronization, we mean uh, on f f both ways or just the master slave? Depends on what you need, but it's usually two ways, right? Because you're capturing data in two different, uh, in two different areas, regions. Uh, we, we actually talked about this a couple of years ago with the command query responsibility segregation. It's uh, the, the expectation that you set on the user just because you send information doesn't mean that you're gonna see a response right away. And it's all about the expectation that you said when you're building the application, you can tell, uh, you can you can tell the, the, the end user, we receive your information and we're just gonna send you a confirmation in the next five to 10 minutes. That probably means that internally the systems are synchronizing and you're not gonna see an immediate response. And, and you know, people are using to that, are getting used to that, right? When you go to a, a portal in many cases you're gonna see a message that says you you can expect to hear back from us in the next five to ten minutes <coughs> and then again that usually means that there's some type of synchronization internally right and if you think about the government uh filing your taxes the latency is not a big problem uh for that type of thing but like if you're a financial company and you're dealing with trades on the stock exchange then well Data synchronization might not be the best architecture. If we should go to, to the next level, the application layer or level that Ricardo said, that it's not, this depends on, on the problem and the solution, of course, uh, is the Windows Azure service bus. And that's the most scary part in Azure, I think, the service bus. Well, in a way, you could argue it's also the most secure for a government because after all, if, if, if someone places a message on the queue, it, um, they can't really, that's all they can do. They can't really go to an internal machine inside the government. They're abstracted away by this kind of service queue. And so in a way, it's a way for, for, for a system to communicate with the government without having internal access to any resources. But so another you way, you, you, as a, uh, you can open uh, 
go through the firewall from the inside without the IT guys knowing anything. Uh, with the service bus, you you're pretty you can much... expose an, an public endpoint on the internet. And that's the only endpoint you can really get to. You can't go beyond that endpoint. You can't break through the service bus and get to the other side. Well, if you think about it too, that I mean, when uh, Bruno mentioned in the queue, you're going to have small messages. So you only have a very, very small portion of the information that you will require to really uh, make some damage. And, and actually, one, one strategy that you can use is to um, distribute the messages that you are sending in multiple ones. So if anybody reads one queue, they will only get portions of the information, not everything. So if they see just a series of numbers, and they can be encrypted too. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are different mechanisms to secure what you are sending and you are transmitting through the queues. And, and by the way, the service boss it relies on Azure storage which means that it's automatically backed up three times inside the same data storage. In, I'm sorry, you say this inside the same data center. Um, and, and we actually offer uh, redundancy, your redundancy for storage. So it, it doesn't mean that just because you're using queues, the information will go away if something happens to that uh, specific server. We, we have, we have uh, backups. In, internally. I, I was just uh, kidding with you. I really like the service bus. Uh, when I started using SOA, I really like the ESB conception of your yep. enterprise service bus. So I really like it. But I think that some are a bit concerned about the, the, pos the, the thing that you can open up, as you said, the, the firewall from the inside and have a public endpoint. But I understand it's it could be really hard, uh, really defined. So it's should be no problem, but uh, it could be the developers then does it in the wrong way, maybe? Well, you know, Juval Lowe, one of the well-known WCF architects, argues that it's a Skype in the box. So it can allow you to kind of connect two machines across a wire. Um, should should anyone, uh, Ricardo, uh, okay, Bruno, sorry, Bruno, C could you, Bruno, explain what the service bus is for, for the listeners that are not so familiar with that concept? I think the easiest way to think about it is picture that there's this queue up in the cloud that you could put messages into. Uh, now, you can put those uh, messages and get subscribers to those messages, and you can define what they call a topic and a subscription which allows you to, um, so I could place, if I'm uh, wanting to communicate to, say, the government, I can put my message into a specific topic. Then the government can have these listeners that subscribe to that topic, and they would get the messages relating just to them. And so those messages stay in the queue until some process comes in and removes it from the queue. So think of it as a decoupled way to send messages between different entities. I think that's the easiest way to think about it. Yeah, and we, we can then, uh, of course, expose uh, internal application. Or internal application can read from that queues that are stored in, in Azure Storage then. It's amazing how uh, buzzwords come and go, <laughs> uh, just like cloud is today, is today. If you remember six, seven years ago, SOA, service-oriented architecture, was everywhere. And the enterprise service boss software, it's basically a software architecture model, right? 
And there are different ways to connect different pieces. One of them is the PubSub model, where you have a publisher and multiple subscribers. There's always the model where you have competing listeners trying to get messages from uh, from a single source. Um, and again, all these concepts were um, were very popular back then. Everybody was talking about this, and somehow uh, the interest uh, went down. Uh, but it works very well. It works very, very well, and it applies to multiple scenarios. Uh, Bruno and I always talk about how underutilized the service bus is, um, and we try to promote uh, that concept as much as we can because it's the perfect tool for many scenarios. By the way, when we're talking about the service bus, uh, why haven't you t uh, included the integration point with BizTalk server or BizTalk services? That is you a good, a yeah, good topic. No, I was just going to comment, Ricardo, that that's something we do need to address in one of our articles. Uh, it is a powerful feature, although we were, we were even debating to what extent does the government need electronic data interchange, you know, uh, which is one of the functions of BizTalk. I don't know if you have a, any use cases in, in your mind, um, Ricardo, where the government uses BizTalk to communicate across service uh, bus. Yes, I, I, I think that it will apply to the same scenarios where you can use the enterprise service bus. And we always had that overlap even back in the days. Do I use uh, enterprise service bus or do I use BizTalk? And the beauty of BizTalk is that you have all the adapters ready, right? All the different B2B standards in there to exchange information. For sure, Bruno, I think that that's a really good case. To be honest, we didn't mention this in the article because when we wrote it, this is back in July. And six months in cloud time is like 10 years. Um, but this talk as a service was not available back then. We just announced it like two months ago. And this talk was still not certified to run in virtual machines. All that changed in six months. So now we need to expand uh, our diagram to include under that application layer connectivity and messaging, this talk as a service and this talk in virtual machines as, uh, as well. Um, and again, the, the difference between service boss and, and BizTalk, <coughs> I'm sorry, is that you have the BizTalk adapters ready to be used, and for the same reason, it's more expensive. Uh, the enterprise service boss is, is a good tool when you, when you are trying to do basic messaging like PopSob or competing messaging. Uh, or fan out um, and, and use basic use cases. When you need to do something more complicated that requires more orchestration, then, then you can always uh, consider using BizTalk. And there's a lot of adapters and so forth, these components pre-built for certain yep. use case scenarios in certain industries. So that's the other big advantage is the ability to purchase adapters that fulfill specific needs. If we should go down the ISO stack that we talked about uh, earlier, the, the networking stack, we are going now to the lower level called the TCP level because we will talk about uh, secure machine to site and secure site to site uh, integration points with the VPN tunnels and so such things. Could one of you just first uh, take a step back and, and say what this is, really is? Okay. Um, well, I think if I have an if I'm the government and I want uh, to host some of my services in the cloud, and have communication going back and forth, say with an on-premise database to services in the cloud, 
I will probably want to set up a virtual private network. And maybe in that case, I might be conservative and do a machine to site, which means I'm basically giving just one machine connectivity into the VPN. Whereas if I do a site to site, that's more a scenario where I want, say, remote workers from different locations to be able to access resources up in the cloud from the uh, network and the government. So, so, the, so the machine to site is, uh, for example, as we at Microsoft uh, dial in to, to our VPN. It's just your, our computer that are connected to, to the corp network. Exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, it's more it's more maintenance, right? Because now each client machine needs to be configured specifically. Uh, and uh, is, it's an exit that you download and install on the machine and you run it. That's the more technical uh, thing that happens. Correct. You have to actually run some kind of setup on that client machine to enable it. Whereas with site to site, your your login credentials get you in. And the site-to-site -site is more a connection between different networks. So they uh, uh, are. You you think that they are on the same network then? Yes, uh, that, that is that is correct. Basically, you have uh, subnets um, that where you you define the different subnets inside your virtual network with IP address ranges, um, and then you can address the different machines using the internal IP address. Uh, regardless of they they being deployed on premises or in the public cloud, so they become part of the same network. Um, today, when you have different subnets, they can they can see each other. We we still don't don't provide a mechanism to to um, to restrict uh, traffic between subnets. Uh, today is 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 100% open between machines. Obviously, you can use local firewalls to to prevent access to some of the machines in the virtual network. Uh, you can imagine the roadmap. We have some we have some uh, 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 features that will be added that will allow you to to restrict access to specific internal IP addresses. But today is is wide open. Once you create your virtual network, you define your subnets. All the machines can see each other. By the way, you, you do that up at the Azure portal. So you need to do a little bit of homework, learn about all these different subnets. Uh, you'll have your VPN device, its endpoints, and then you simply go up to the Azure portal, and in a matter of minutes, which is kind of unprecedented, you can have a VPN up and running. And uh, what's the requirement? Uh, you talk about the requirement uh, with a Cisco router, or was it? Can, can you explain what the requirement is to, to have the side-to-side -to, -side to work? Well, I think you just need the one VPN device, and there's a number of them. Over the years, they were in the tens of thousands of dollars, but now you're getting these devices like the Cisco, I think it's the 5505, and you can find it uh, for sub $300. So it's simply a question of getting that device, understanding your network, and then going up to the Azure portal and configuring your VPN, your network, and the cloud service. You need a, a public API from your internal from so you can connect to your internal site. Ricardo, you just tried to you bought one of those devices, and what was the challenge that you mentioned to me? Well, you need to have uh, uh, the, the VPN device needs to be basically the facing one in your network. You you need to expose that as as the first device that uh, is going to be accessed when when you reach your, your your network. And what I had to do is I I actually have two different providers coming to my home. I have my uh, my regular uh, router uh, 
for my internal use and my family's use. And then I, I created a second uh, network using the VPN device for testing purposes. <clears throat> That's the only thing you have to keep in mind. Uh, the, the other one is the requirements are, are pretty standard for, from, from an IT perspective. Uh, we support static and dynamic routing. Uh, I, actually, that I'll make sure to share with you the requirements. We have a, a nice page that lists all the requirements for the VPN devices. I can tell you that we support around 80 to 85 percent of the uh, uh, Cisco and Juniper uh, devices. Uh, we actually know uh, about companies creating scripts for other devices that are not the official scripts, but we actually have supported them in some cases when they come to us and say, hey, I have this device. It's not listed in your list. Uh, how can I connect it? We, we have helped those those companies as well. Is that as you can imagine, we have to certify them internally, and it takes some time. Uh, but uh, it, it's, it's nothing proprietary. It's just a standard scripts that you will use to connect other VPN devices. I'm sorry, VPN devices to other networks, internal or external. Nothing proprietary about it. Uh, we have uh, we need, really need to, to wrap it up here. But I have one question to you uh, that you maybe can elaborate a bit, a bit more about. It. And that that's uh, what do you think is the the biggest challenges challenges now for both companies and governments to embrace cloud? What do you think is the most hurdles that they have right now, Bruno? I, the the easy one for me is the compliance issues. Uh, uh, this is a big deal that the legal aspects of where you put key information and the government is very concerned about breaking laws, of course. And so, you know, at Microsoft, we, we have dedicated legal teams to help individuals and governments define what the boundaries are. And so you might have a city that has its own perspective legally about what's possible. You might have a state you might have a country, and these laws are fairly complex. And so I think, uh, you know, not even Congress and, and the government understands well enough the technology to make easy and 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 reasonable laws. So, do you think, think that uh, we need to change the laws, or will we um, sometimes, uh, in some way, conform to the laws to to use cloud? That's a great question. You know, what's going to be the the best way to kind of find the middle ground. And I think, you know, you look at Germany, they're very strict about compliance, as is Canada. And so, I don't know, it has to be voluntary on that government to, to you can't really legislate across governments. So it has to be voluntary and they have to find that middle ground. And, you know, they're going to have to balance the cost of IT, right? Because ultimately it turns, this is a cost of services type of argument. What, what are the compromises you're going to make to lower your costs? Ricardo, what do you think is the biggest challenges right now? I think that the biggest challenge where we talk about this is trust. And then you build trust over time. And I, because I think that we, as, uh, as an industry, we are ready to, to take those scenarios and use cases. And uh, I see it every day. I mean, we started in 2010 with Windows Azure. Uh, as you can imagine, we uh, at some point it was easy to know all the companies using using cloud. Uh, over time, you can tell that the pioneers and the efforts of evangelism are, are paying off because companies are understanding the benefits of the cloud. The benefits of 
this basic model because this is the fundamental concept that the public cloud brings to the table. You pay for what you use. And understanding that has tremendous implications um, for the government and for the private uh, companies as well. Um, because in the past, you had to provision in advance. You have to be ready. And, and we had this big problem in the US, right, with, with the healthcare, new, new healthcare act. The website was not ready to take all the traffic that, um, uh, that, that, that it generated because there, there was a lot of expectation for the program and there were just too many issues with the, with the website taking all that traffic. Well, you don't have to face that with the public cloud because you can tell, you can start with one server, literally. And then auto scale, because we have auto scaling mechanism that basically you monitor the traffic and as you monitor the traffic, you are automatically, uh, or the, the, the deployment automatically increases the number of servers serving that people. And companies are only charged for that time that is being used on servers. As, as the traffic, um, um, it stabilizes, then the servers can um, uh, be removed and the, the, the deployment is obviously much uh, cheaper than having 100 servers just in case. That was the approach in the past, right? Just, just in case, buy 200 servers. And that was a waste of capacity. So that, that's the fundamental concept that we're trying for companies and the government to understand. And obviously also provide the criteria that they need to use when it comes to where to deploy. So uh, again, to answer your question, trust, time, and understanding. So sum it up, uh, we can stay, uh, end with the question, who should you trust? Microsoft, that have been in the business for very long? Some other vendor? What do you think? Bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.